0: I may desire to win a million dollars, but I don't expect to. Or I uh, expect to pay my taxes this year, but I don't desire to. Listen, either desire or expectancy missing, you don't have hope. Hope in the New Testament has those two key ingredients.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogey senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Romans, and today, from chapter 5, we begin a look at Trials and Tribulations in the Life of a Believer. Our passage includes verses 3 through 5, and the message is entitled, Maturity Through Tribulation.
0: I want to invite you to take the Word of God this morning and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We're continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of this great letter. I hope you bring a Bible to church. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God. Now this morning, I wanna speak to you about your theology of persecution. You say, well, pastor, I'm not a theologian. Yes, you are, everyone's a theologian. The word theos, we get our word theology. It means God. Logos means word or thought or expression. And so a theology is the thought, the word that you have about God. It's the way you think about God. And everyone has a theology. Even the atheist has a theology. When he thinks about God, he rejects his existence. And he says there is no God. The agnostic has a theology. When he thinks about God, he says, I don't know if there's a God. The pantheists has a theology. Pan means all. The pantheists would say all is God. God is all. This pulpit is God. That chair you're on is God. The air is God. You're God. Everything's God. Everyone has a theology. It doesn't matter what your frame of reference may be. We all have a theology. We all have a theology of sorts. The question is, is it a true theology? Is it an accurate theology? Sometimes people kind of rear back their shoulders and say, well, I believe... And they begin to pontificate with a sense of authority. Listen, you can believe it all you want, but if it's not accurate, it doesn't matter how sincerely you embrace it, you're sincerely wrong. And so God has given us a plumb line. We call it the Holy Scripture. It's the only book He ever wrote, the only book He ever inspired. Now, there's nothing wrong with being an amateur theologian or a professional theologian, but what is wrong is to be a sloppy or ignorant theologian. And so God tells us to study and show ourselves approved of Him as workmen who are not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He's given us a plumb line. He's given us a standard, a measuring stick. The word canon is from a Latin word that means a measuring rod. And so we speak of the canon of Scripture. We're saying the canon of Scripture is a measuring stick in which to evaluate all truth. And so this morning we wanna talk about a theology suffering. Now, if you were here last time, we looked at verses one and two. As you can see from the outline, we're going to focus this morning on verses three through five. But to give us a running start, let's begin reading in verse one of chapter five. Romans five now, beginning in verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, for the benefit of first-timers and for the rest of us, so that we really end up learning the book of Romans Let me bring us into the context. If you were here seven months ago for the introductory sermon in the book of Romans, we saw that there are three major divisions to this great letter. In chapters 1 through 8, we find a picture of God's righteousness revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. We saw that the theme of the whole letter is God's righteousness. Paul states that in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And so in this section, he deals with how a righteous God can take unrighteous people and give them a righteous standing in his sight. When you look at chapters 1 through 8, if you needed one word to summarize it, it would be the word doctrinal. Chapters 1 through 8 are doctrinal. When you come to chapter 9, it's obvious that you turn a corner, and he moves from God's righteousness revealed to God's righteousness vindicated. And God vindicates His righteousness in that, if you remember at the close of chapter 8, a very famous popular chapter often quoted, Paul reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that God has loved us with an eternal love, which naturally would bring up a question. Well, wait a minute. God said under the Old Covenant that He loved Israel with an everlasting love. And if God loved Israel with an everlasting love, and if He came to His own and His own received Him not... Then what's Israel's state? How does God view Israel today? Because God made some unconditional promises. He made an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he vindicates his righteousness. He speaks of Israel's election in chapter 9, Israel's rejection in chapter 10, and their future restoration in chapter 11. In one word, that section is the national section. Now, when you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, you turn another corner in this great letter. It begins with the word, therefore, and it is a picture of God's righteousness applied. And so, in chapters 12 through 16, he applies the great doctrines that he spent 11 chapters explaining to us. Section 1 is doctrinal. It is God's righteousness revealed. Section 2 is national. It is God's righteousness vindicated. Vindicated. Section three is practical. It is God's righteousness applied. And we saw that each section in turn divides into three sections. So we're in the doctrinal section. And in the doctrinal section, he highlights three major doctrines. First, after he gives the introduction in one one to seventeen, beginning in one eighteen, all the way through three nineteen, he deals with the doctrine of condemnation. And his thesis is simple, that no one can claim innocence before God because no one can claim ignorance about God. Wherever you live on the planet, God has revealed himself in some way. You may never have had a Bible. You may have never have heard the name of Jesus, but God has given you enough light to hold you accountable. Men often suppress the light they have, and so they never hear anymore. But he demonstrates the condemnation of man. And so when we come to chapter 3 and verse 20, he turns a corner and he moves from the doctrine of condemnation to the doctrine of justification. He gives us first the bad news so we can understand the good news. And so in 3.21, he explains that we're not saved by good deeds, we're saved by the grace and mercy of God. And then when we come to chapter 6, we'll turn another corner in the doctrinal section and we'll move from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. Justification is what happens the moment you're saved, it speaks of your position. Sanctification speaks of your standing, of your practice. Justification views You, as God has declared you, sanctification is what God is making you. And so when we come to chapters 6, 7, and 8, of course, before we can apply 6, 7, and 8, we have to understand 3, 4, and 5. And understand 3, 4, and 5, you have to understand 1, 2, and 3. And so there's a a, a building that he is laying here and unfolding for us. And he's going to show us in this third section that the Lord Jesus not only dealt with the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Now, let's zoom in on the immediate context. When you come into chapter 5, what's the first word? Therefore. And of course, you want to know, what is it therefore? This is the fifth therefore in the book of Romans. He's just explained man's sinful heart in need of redemption. He's taught us in the third chapter that we're not saved by works, by ritual, by ancestry, or one's position, but only by the grace of God. In chapter 4, he illustrates that through Abraham. And he demonstrates that Abraham had peace with God because he came to God on God's terms. And if you want to have peace with God, you must come God's way. And so chapter 5 begins, therefore, having been justified by faith. What's the last word of chapter 4 in your Bible? What's the last word? Justification. That's the theme of the fourth chapter. And so, when He gives us a whole chapter on Abraham and a brief snippet on David, it's not just to give us a biography on those men, but then to take that information and to apply it. And so, having just explored this great father of the faith Abraham, now he wants us to experience the kind of walk that Abraham knew. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's no more slides, so bring a Bible. If you need one, talk to me, all right? I've done you a disservice, I think. So many of you stopped bringing your Bible. So many new believers don't know where they are, and they're dependent on these slides, so bring a Bible all right, I know who you are. (laughs) Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, he's not talking about the peace of God, that feeling of peace, that peaceful state within your heart. He's talking about peace with God. That peaceful state uh, that you may experience is what we call elsewhere the fruit of the Spirit. And you may or may not be experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in your life today. He lives in you, He indwells you, but He's not necessarily filling you. Well, we spoke, if you were here last time for our Thanksgiving message, about the peace of God from Philippians, where Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he says, The peace of God that surpasses all human comprehension shall guard, shall garrison your heart in Jesus Christ. So the peace of God is an internal feeling, it's very subjective. But peace with God is objective. It speaks of how God looks at you. And when we come to verse 10 in this chapter, he's going to say before we're saved, we're enemies of God. Enemies that God loves, but nonetheless enemies. And so you have to come to terms with God. So look at verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt, not exalt. We saw the word exalt means to lift up Exult means to rejoice. We exult, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, because we have peace with God, we have an introduction. Some of your translations say we have access with the Father. And access is okay. It's hard to choose a single word. Uh, But in English, it might imply, not always, but it might imply that we've taken the initiative to come in. But the word prosago that is used here is used in the Bible and in Bible times of someone bringing another person into the presence of royalty. We have an introduction. The Lord Jesus, of course, is the one who brings us in. We have an audience with the king. And the Old Testament, you know, it was written in Hebrew, but it was also translated into the Greek. We call it the Septuagint, abbreviated LXX. The same word is used of someone who comes and worships God, someone who comes into the presence of God. Now, this is a radical thought for someone in the first century, because under the old deal, under the old covenant, there were all these barriers where man was kept away from God. Remember in Exodus 19, God came to Moses and said, go tell the people, you've got two days to get ready. Prepare yourselves, prepare even your clothing. Because the day after tomorrow, I'm going to come down on the mountain. And then he said, mark off a boundary around the mountain for the people and tell them not to go up the mountain or even touch it. Those who touch the mountain must be put to death. Nobody said, well, I just think I'll go in and see God. Now, God is holy And those old covenant saints never had the kind of access. And even as God established a formal system of worship, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple, there were all these barriers keeping people out. And really, there was only one man who once a year on Yom Kippur, for a short period of time on the Day of Atonement, for a very short period of time, could go into the presence of God. But what Paul is saying here is, listen, we have an introduction By this grace in which we stand, not only are we saved by grace, we stand in grace. And before we're done at the end of verses 10 and 11, he will say that we're secured by grace. We no longer have a status of condemnation. We have a status of favor. We have peace with God, and this is reason to rejoice, and this is why under the new covenant, He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. No one ever born of a woman, Jesus said, was greater than John. But he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Because John never lived to experience the blessing of the new covenant. Through him also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. and I have that word hope underlined in my Bible, and it is so different from the way we typically use it in English. Well, I hope the rain quits, or I hope I get a raise, or I hope my suit still fits, or I hope this, or I hope that. And in English, uh, this word hope or hope so has a degree of uncertainty to it. But in Greek, it has a whole lot more steel and concrete to it. It speaks of something that is sure and certain there in his lexicon says hope. He defines it as, quote, a joyful and confident expectation. So it's not like English of something that may or may not happen. Hope biblically is actually desire with expectancy. And if you admit either desire or expectancy, you do not have biblical hope. For instance, I may desire to win a million dollars, but I don't expect to. Or, I uh, expect to pay my taxes this year, but I don't desire to. Listen, either desire or expectancy missing, you don't have hope. Hope in the New Testament has those two key ingredients. And it is something that is sure and guaranteed that God has promised that will happen in the future. So here in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is describing our standing. He's describing our position And he tells us in the last two verses of chapter 4, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We have been declared righteous in the sight of Almighty God. And not only do we have acceptance with God, we have access to the Father. We stand in this grace. We are welcomed into the presence of God, and we don't have to leave. We can stay there and enjoy His presence. Now, beginning in verse 3, he's going to move from our standing... To our state. And he's just going to spend a couple of verses on it. Our standing speaks of your position. Your state speaks of your practice. And he's just going to talk about it for a moment. Because when he comes to chapters 6, 7, and 8. He's going to spend the whole time on your state. Our standing is perfect. It's guaranteed by the promises of God. Our state is changeable. It can be imperfect. In large measure to the decisions that we make. Whether or not we choose to walk with God and obey Him. And so, our, our state is a permanent thing. Our standing is a uh, our standing is a permanent thing. Our state is a progressive thing. And again, it's made largely on decisions that you make. And so, I want us to think this morning about decisions you're going to make. Decisions you're going to make about tribulation. And if you really have a biblical theology on tribulation, if your mind has been renewed, which is possible if you've been born again because you have the mind of Christ, if your mind's been renewed, then you can begin to think your thoughts after God's thoughts, and you can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, Paul in verses 3 through 5, by the Spirit of God, highlights three simple truths to help us to respond biblically to tribulation. First in your outline, he wants us to understand how maturity is displayed by us. Tribulation is designed to mature us. And so he wants us to understand how maturity is displayed by us. Notice how verse 3 begins. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation. He's moving now to the next highest level of rejoicing. We saw last time there are three levels. And he'll bring it to a crescendo when he comes to verse 11. A man was in Washington, D.C., and he looked up and he saw the National Archives building and written across the facade, it says, the past is prologue. He said to the cab driver, what does that mean? And the cab, he said, well, that's just government talk for meaning you ain't seen nothing yet. Well, the, the phrase is famous. You know, it's from Shakespeare. And basically, in the context, it means the past has set the context for the future, And that's what Paul is going to argue here. Because of your decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God, you have a new standing, you stand in the grace of God, and it has set the context for the future. And so he says, not only this, but we rejoice, we exult in our tribulations. Now, some of your translations, the ESV, NIV, NET, ISV, say we rejoice in our sufferings. But I like the King James and the New American Standard here because it uses the word tribulation. And I think that's helpful because it separates it from everyday ordinary suffering. The Greek word thalipsis does not refer to what we sometimes call trials and tribulations. It's not referring to our aches and our pains, our fears, our frustrations, our sicknesses, our heartaches, and the many disappointments that we may experience in this life. Now, in English, we just tend to bleed together trials and tribulations, but they're not bled together in Holy Scripture. Uh, There's a diagram here I have for you, and as you can see, tribulation is a subset of trials. In other words, all tribulation is a trial. But not all trials in this life are tribulations. Now, certainly, James said, you can count it all joy when you encounter various trials. But while all tribulations are trials of sort, not all trials are tribulations of sort. There's a difference between the two. The word thalipsis literally means pressure. And it's used, without exception in the New Testament, of the pressure of an ungodly world on a believer. Uh, Let me give you some examples. It's a very technical term. Use the persecution in the word of God. The Lord Jesus said in Mark 13, for those days will be a time of tribulation. Philipsis, same word, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. In the Revelation, John is speaking of those martyrs, those saints who lose their lives because they refuse to bow to Antichrist. And he says these are the ones who come out of the great Philipsis, tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Likewise, the Lord Jesus warned his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. Same word. He's talking about persecution. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Likewise, Paul, in the context of suffering Persecution, living for Christ, he reminded the disciples at Lystra in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, tribulation refers to that pressure of an ungodly world on the believer because you stand and live for Jesus Christ. So, look again at verse 3, and not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. Now, there's an assumption in this verse, and dozens like it in the New Testament, that Christians experience tribulation, and so we are to exult. we are to rejoice when it happens. Now, please notice, he does not say, I rejoice in spite of my tribulations, but I rejoice in or for my tribulations, why? Because he understood something about the blessing that tribulation could bring, and so I want us to think biblically, like Paul did, about persecution, because sooner or later, You may not only find yourself in some trial, you may find yourself in some tribulation because you live for Jesus Christ. And Christians sometimes have different reactions. Some reason when they are persecuted, well, God doesn't know that I'm suffering. And then upon further reflection, they say, well, no, that can't be true because God knows everything. God can't even see a bird fall to the ground apart from His notice. Now, that, that can't be true. But then the devil may say, well, God knows all things but God just doesn't care. He doesn't care about you. And then upon further reflection, he said, well, that can't be true. God has demonstrated His love for me, and that while I was a sinner, the Lord Jesus died for me. What greater expression of love is that? Not to mention, as Paul's going to argue, the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out in my heart. Well, the devil may still attack and say, well, God knows, and God cares. He just can't do anything about it. His hands are tied. The Bible says, no, that's not true either, because nothing is impossible with God. So it's easy to become confused if you do not have a biblical theology of tribulation. So let's read all of verse 3. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations knowing, underscore that, circle it in your Bible, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. It's very similar to what James says. Is it not considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so we display our maturity only when we rejoice in both trials and in tribulations. And that is only possible if your mind has been renewed and that truth is in the forefront of your mind because you are filled with the Spirit and walking with God and you know what God's Word says. Now, hold your finger here, would you? And I want you to turn to 1 Peter. If you're new to the Bible, find the book of Revelation. That's the last book of the Bible. And right before Revelation, you have four little short books 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude. And right before those four little short books, you have the books of First and 2nd Peter. And I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter 4, The apostle deals with this subject of tribulation. So again, I want us to have a biblical theology, and we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture this morning. 1 Peter 4, and look, if you will, in verse 12, the first word is beloved. Now we saw that the word beloved, the noun, speaks of a special group of people. While God loves the whole world, we are His beloved. God has a special affection for those who are saved. I love your children, but I don't love them the way I love my children. I have a special affection for my children. So God's people are called beloved. And as we saw in Romans 1 verse 7, we are beloved of God. God has a special in verb form affection on us. So he's talking to believers. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now drop down to verse 14. He says to God's people, if you are reviled, insulted, For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now look at verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, talking about Christian suffering here, he is not to be ashamed but to glorify God in this name. So he's speaking about suffering as a Christian, what Jesus called in the Gospels, bearing your own cross. Now suffering as a Christian or bearing your own cross is not due because you have a... a, the fact that you have a migraine or some backache. It's not even the man you're married to. Now, the man you're married to, ladies, he he may be crossed, but he's not your cross. Jesus is talking about bearing the cross of persecution, that the servant is not greater than his master because they hated him, they will hate you. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when, not if, but when, Men insult you and persecute you and say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of me. He doesn't say if it will happen, but when it happens, when philipsis, when persecution or tribulation comes. And if you live for Christ and you begin to grow as a Christian, you are going to invite persecution.
1: We'll continue today's message, Maturity Through Tribulation, tomorrow, But if you'd like to hear it in its entirety before the ending, you can use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM22. Do you tweet? If so, you'll want to follow both Pastor Brogy at CJ Brogy and search the Scriptures at ST Scriptures. Tomorrow we continue our look at maturity through tribulation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.